I grew up in the West Indies um, on probably one of the smaller islands in the West Indies, but not the least populated one. And there's farmers, but it was, I don't know, since the end of slavery or something, it hasn't been an agricultural community even slightly, but we have daylight saving time, which I don't, I don't understand why we have daylight saving time. So when I was a kid, I just like assumed it was, oh, this is just what people do. But then when I, when I got older and I realized what the point of daylight saving time said, I said, why the fuck do we do it? Yeah. I mean, like, that's true like everywhere right like i'm from i'm from alabama for example alabama is a very rural state there are probably more farmers here than you know a lot of places i guess but like like you said it's not an agricultural like base to society or anything like that when when you look at that sort of thing and how it's still like ongoing despite the fact that you know there's tons of evidence pointing to all of the bad things about daylight savings time how many car wrecks it causes every year and shit like that you kind of have to wonder like is keeping it around just imperial inertia or are we just like on what level is it harder to change something that's just always been that way as long as everybody you know currently alive has been around or something i I don't know i don't understand why we have to keep this shit and make ourselves miserable twice a year every year Yep. Okay, well, this is the second episode of Song Dogs Podcast. I'm JB, and we've got Mealy and a very special guest. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, you, okay, so you want me to <laughs> Right, I know we talked about that, but anyway, um, this is Anamaki Kashikna. I'm a member of the Kashwamachitawak Nation of Wisconsin, otherwise known as Menominee Indian Tribe of Wisconsin. I currently live in Canada. And Anamaki is here today, and I guess we're going to talk quite a bit about settler colonialism, but we're, we're going to let him lead the conversation and kind of take it wherever uh, he wants to go. Uh, I know me and I brought some questions. I think Mealy brought some questions, and uh, we'll just see what happens. So um, I'll lead off with a very, very broad question, but I, I think it it's a good place to start just for people who might listen that aren't familiar with it. Uh, what is settler colonialism and how does it differ from other forms of imperialism? Well, I think the the big thing, there's been a lot of theorizing, thinking about this question, really going back to the 70s, but um, things really began to sort of change, um, I don't know, early 90s, uh, in terms of this idea of settler colonialism being uh, a different form of domination than uh, when we think of colonialism proper, we think about imperialism. I think one of the mistakes of um, previous ways of thinking about settler colonialism, and by previous, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll preface that by saying I mean like old or out-of-date ways of thinking about settler colonialism, and I don't think a lot of the left has really moved on from these, is this idea that settler colonialism is colonialism with settlers. But the uh, recently passed away, within the last two years, Australian historian and anthropologist Patrick Wolfe 
and some other people from Australia, like uh, Lorenzo Veracini, um, did a lot of work on saying, okay, well, you know, what what is settler colonialism in particular that differentiates it from all these other sort of examples of colonialism, you know, since kind of like the birth of the modern world, uh, and like the long 17th century. And the main one is that settler colonialism is, well, actually, I'll back up for a second. When we think of colonialism, when we think of something like the Dutch East Indies or French Indochina or French West Africa or any of these other colonial examples all over the world, these, these sort of European imperialist colonies, is they were mostly about uh, essentially like value generation through uh, labor exploitation. And so essentially those colonial projects sought to mix indigenous land and indigenous resources with indigenous labor in some sort of super exploitative, uh, racialized or often racialized value creation, right? The sort of way we often think of colonialism or imperialism. But settler colonialism, though, the principal point of settler colonialism is actually the land itself. And in that, in this, indigenous people become superfluous or they actually become like a boundary or barrier to the expansion of the colonial project. So Patrick Wolf talks about the defining feature of settler colonialism being what he calls a logic of elimination. And so settler colonialism seeks to essentially eliminate indigenous people. Um, This happens through a myriad of different sort of ways. It's not just spreading blankets with smallpox or, um, you know, going into a, a native village with the cavalry and, you know, chain gunning everybody. Or it also, it, it contains a bunch of other things as well, like the way that the United States and Canada, for example, sort of have these legal orders around who's an Indian and who's not an Indian. The way those systems are set up, they're, they're set up inherently to cause a diminishment of the indigenous population through sort of like watering down of indigenous blood, however you might want to think about it. Uh, I often talk about like a, like a hypersolubility of indigeneity, right? You, you mix indigeneity with anything and you have something that a child that is less indigenous. And you, the purpose of that is through the generations, eventually you'll breed indigenous people out of existence. That's to make the land empty for settlement. Consequently, indigenous labor in the settler colonies, so Canada, the United States, Australia, um, Israel, etc., is superfluous. Indigenous labor isn't necessary for uh, sort of functioning of capital accumulation. Uh, you know, Glenn Coulthard, who's a Canadian DNA uh, sort of Marxist, Bananian theorist. Um, he talks about, you know, he specifically locates it as a post-fur trade. You know, during the fur trade, they needed Indians. The Hudson's Bay Company, etc. they needed Indians to do trapping and bring furs and everything. Um, but since, since that, indigenous labor is unnecessary. Indigenous labor will always be used to the extent that it still exists. But the intention of the, the colonial project is to eventually replace it. And, you know, in the United States, for example, indigenous labor was replaced by the importation of enslaved African people. In Australia, it was replaced through the the colonization of Australia through um, 
essentially like penal labor. Um, and there's, there's some history there about how the, the British sort of learned their lesson from the American colonies of importing uh, a hostile enslaved population who they racialized as different people of that, that creating problems for the British. So they didn't do that in Australia, but they still replaced in, indigenous labor with you know, penal labor. Or in, in Israel today, um, the Palestinians have largely been replaced and are being replaced by non-Ashkenazi Jews, uh, by Sephardim and Mizrahim and stuff from um, you know, North Africa and the Arab world. And there's some sort of deracialization project there where, you know, now you're a Jew or you're an Arab. You can't be both. Um, but the goal there is still to make Palestinians unnecessary for to, to extract value from their labor. And, yeah, essentially, I think that's, that's the real big difference. And so in, in indigenous oppression under settler colonialism, it's not really proletarianization and labor exploitation that are kind of the, the pivot of indigenous oppression. It's essentially elimination, genocide, extermination, however you want to think of it, and dispossession. I'll, I'll just I'll say one other thing, too, because people often ask, um, where's South Africa or where's sort of Rhodesia in this kind of model? Because people often think of those as settler colonies, right? And I'll say there is, there is sort of debate now about that. Because under this sort of rubric, Azani, occupied Azania or Rhodesia or something, they're, um, they, they seem closer to sort of the imperial model of, of labor domination. It just is a sort of case where the, the metropole and the colony are sort of like geographically occupy the same space. There isn't some sort of, you know, open water between the imperial motherland and the colony. And so some people have been, have been quite critical of that. Um, Robin D.G. Kelly, who's a black American Marxist, he's, he's recently written some sort of stuff. They're trying to read um, Patrick Wolfe and Cedric Robinson, who is the author of Black Marxism, um, sort of together to kind of figure out how, how can we incorporate South Africa or whatever into this sort of like ideas around settler colonialism. But I maintain that at least when looking at North America, the the fundamental difference, fundamental thing that differentiates us is that uh, Canada and America want to wipe us out. They don't really care about exploiting us. Right. So uh, when you were talking a minute ago about like the the sort of setting the standard of like what is and what isn't indigenous, you're referring to the blood quantum. Yeah, in in America, it's it's mostly by blood quantum. Not all tribes, I kind of hate using that word, but not all tribes use blood quantum in America. Some use uh, like a like a system like the Dawes Rolls, like the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Um, and in Canada, the system is different, in, in almost, in basically entirely. In, in Canada, the system was, it, it changed a little bit in 85, um, but under the Indian Act, see, one, one big thing that differentiates how, how the Americans do it and how the Canadians do it is the Canadians have a single overarching piece of legislation called the Indian Act, and that, that governs all of this stuff. Prior to 1985 was the passage of a bill in the Canadian Parliament called uh, C-31. Um, the law was that if an Indian woman 
married a non okay, I'll, a status Indian woman. That means an Indian, a woman who is recognized as an Indian under what they tend to refer to at, under the meaning of the Indian Act that she's an Indian. If she married somebody who is not an Indian under the meaning of the Indian Act, then she lost her status. She, she became a non-Indian. Um, but that didn't just mean um, marrying white people. It meant marrying anybody who wasn't a status Indian. There's a lot of non-status Indians. So you could have, an, a Native woman could have married a Native a Native man who had no status because maybe his mother married out. Marrying out was the way they used to describe it. He wouldn't have had status, but he still would have been a Native. And um, if he had married a Native woman, she would have lost status. Likewise, kind of the flip of that was that if a non-status woman married an Indian man with status, she gained status. But this changed in the 50s. They, they introduced what they call the, the, double, the double grandmother rule, which is that if both your mother and your grandmother had gained status through marrying in, then you don't have status. Oh, wow. And so, and so the Canadians have, and, and even, though the, even though Bill C-31 in the, in the mid-'80s changed it so that white women couldn't marry in and stop this whole gender uh, inequality that was making Native women marry out, uh, the double grandmother rule still exists, you know? And Today. So, yeah. And so there's a lot of people who don't have status but who are Indians because of the way the Canadians have configured their system. Um, after 85, the Canadians did sort of say, well, you know, crap, we, we've got to, like, do something about this um, in terms of they were like, well, now we have all these women who have been disenrolled, basically, and they decided to delineate the responsibility to the communities to figure out what to do with them. And um, one of the big examples is uh, Ganawage, which is this Mohawk community just outside Montreal. And they essentially instituted a form of blood quantum. Um, I don't know if I should really be using that sort of terminology, but that's how I tend to think of it. I'm not a scholar of the community. Um, and it's caused a lot of controversy in that community. Uh, there's a really excellent book about it called Mohawk Interruptus by a, um, a woman who's from that community named Audra Simpson. And there is some talk of kind of having a blood quantum system in Canada, but currently that's not the case. But ultimately, the, the principal goal behind the Canadian system and the American system is to cause a, a diminishment of the indigenous population across the generations through sort of having this, that you can kind of breed indigeneity out of people, you know? Yeah, it sounds like it's kind of like trying to define indigeneity and who people are in a certain legal way, such that when that legal, when that, when that legal definition of, of who people are is applied, that then you can like you said, breed the, that legal definition of, of a people out and therefore completely erase them from history, sort of. That's what it yeah. Sort of like. okay. Yeah, and there, is, and there is a flip to it as well, where um, kind of the, the dialectical pull from 
uh, the elimination is sort of like a settler, settler indigenization. And one of the ways that settler indigenization can happen is because of the way indigeneity is, you get all these white people who are like, I'm 164th Cherokee or something. And that is a way for white people to then sort of be like, well, we're the inheritors of, you know, indigenous ties to the land or whatever, right? Um, as a way to sort of legitimize settler occupation. So it both diminishes the indigenous population and allows white people to sort of accrue elements of indigeneity, you know? I was going to actually, yeah, it's good that you brought that up because I was going to just mention that as sort of a, yeah, like a settler ideological, like, I don't know, gut reaction to someone mentions and whether or not they are um, identifying themselves as indigenous or, or mentioning having, you know, significant mixed heritage or something like this. There are white people whose first reaction is, well, if you go far enough back, I also have indigenous heritage. And it's, I don't know, it's really frustrating because it, it seems like that ideology is constructed in such a way that indigenous people can just never be recognized unless they're recognized by a state that settlers recognize as having authority to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, and it, it, it does create a lot of problems, you know, in, um, here in Ontario, there's a big land claims process happening right now amongst the Algonquins who are part of the Anishinaabe people. And the Algonquins, the one thing it's resulted in is that um, with the provincial border between Ontario and Quebec, there's only 10 federally recognized Algonquin communities in Canada, nine of whom are in Quebec. One of them is in Ontario, kind of northwest of Ottawa. But with this land claim, a lot of people, a lot of bands, with the bands is the terminology the Canadian state uses. For various reasons, a lot of bands or due to marrying out, etc., there was there's a lot of Algonquins in Ontario who don't have status recognition. And so there's been this whole complicated thing about how to incorporate them into the land claims process. But on the other side of it, a lot of people have come out and be like, oh, I have, like, I'm descended from such and such Algonquin woman like 350 years ago. So there, there's a mix. It's made that there's this kind of this messy mix between people who are legitimately Algonquin but don't, who don't have status due to various reasons and people who are basically settlers but yeah, you reach back far enough ago, you know, 16, 17, 18 generations or something, and you find that they, there was an Algonquin woman, sometimes an Algonquin man, but it's often an Algonquin woman who married a French trader or something, you know, and they're using that to claim that they are, they, they should be counted as Algonquins, um, even though they maybe don't have a living tie to Algonquin peoples. Because, you see, there's always this back and forth between natives and non-natives where non-natives, because they're so conditioned by the ideology of the, the settler states that indigeneity is this 
heritable racial characteristic or whatever um, that they think, oh, being 164th Cherokee or having an Algonquin ancestor like 300 years ago makes them Algonquin or makes them an Indian. And indigenous people often say, well, you know, it's not just about inheritability, right? Like, do... Is there, is there like an existing community you're tied to, et cetera? And I mean, it gets, it gets really messy on both sides. Um, there's a lot of gatekeeping, you know, there's almost, it's not really a hashtag, but I like to think of it as like hashtag who claims you, you know? And, and I think there's a lot of gatekeeping from some indigenous people that I, I don't think is, is necessarily helpful and, and can be harmful sometimes, but I, I kind of like, understand what they're doing and it just makes this whole mess you see one one thing that's that's different between Canada and the United States in this regard is uh, bearing in mind that the US has about 10 times the population that Canada does there's hundreds of organizations in the United States that claim to be the whatever Indian nation of whatever state I think over half of them are Cherokees. I looked at a list of it some time ago, and I, and I, I swear there's about a there's at least one group in every single state I think that claims to be you know the Cherokee Nation of Alaska or whatever sort of nonsense. But they don't they don't really do anything. You know, I, the last major case that I remember where it actually had any sort of social impact was. Some some major American university on the East Coast, I don't remember which one, they they hired somebody to be their director of indigenous studies or something, and it turned out that the person's family were European immigrants from the the turn of the nineteenth to the twentieth century, who just decided to start saying they were Delaware Indians, right? They weren't. And but in Canada there's less groups and they're mostly concentrated in sort of eastern Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritime provinces, which are New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, Prince Edward Island, but mostly New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. But a lot of those groups actually emerged often from like white rights groups who sort of opposed modern treaty processes or uh, attempts by indigenous people to assert their treaty rights to hunting or fishing. Uh, This happened a lot in... um, amongst these groups. There's a lot of groups who say they're Métis. Uh, Métis, I guess, for the non-Canadians. Métis is a French word that means mixed, essentially. It's the French cognate of mestizo. But in the Canadian context, it also means a specific community. Uh, The Red River, which was in the area of now, now Winnipeg, there was a specific mixed community there who called themselves the Métis, and they actually fought rebellions against the Canadian government twice uh, in the late late 1800s. And so there is sort of like a, a capital M Métis, like the Métis Nation, and then there's this like lowercase m uh, Métis. And a lot of people in, in Quebec and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are now saying, oh, we're mixed, so we are literally Métis in the the literal meaning of the term, but who are now saying that that makes them the Métis nation of Quebec or New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, and there's a whole bunch of these groups. But some of them started because they opposed 
Mi'kmaq and Inu like treaty rights or attempts to negotiate new agreements with the government. And some of them were, they were, they were like white people, like white hunters and stuff who tried to initially sort of articulate themselves through white rights. And when that wasn't working, they then said, well, we're all actually Métis because we were all descended from an indigenous woman or a handful of indigenous women or something like 350 years ago. Therefore we're now the, you know, Confederacy of Métis peoples of Quebec or whatever they may call themselves. And then they use that, that, that like self-proclaimed status of indigeneity to run interference on actual indigenous people who are trying to assert their rights, trying to survive against uh, genocide. Um, it's not to say that everybody in Quebec or Nova Scotia or New Brunswick who says they're Métis or whatever is not indigenous. Uh, there are probably a lot of people who have legitimate indigenous heritage and who are trying to uh, sort of reclaim that sort of connection to their communities or their people or whatever. But the ultimate thrust of sort of these organizations that have formed out of this, with the exception of one or two, basically, is actually to interfere with the attempt to assert the treaty rights of Indian nation peoples. So essentially, like, it obfuscates where the actual, like, legitimate demand is by equivocating on a term. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, more or less. That's probably a, a, a good way to quickly summarize it. There's, there's a lot of people who are a lot more informed on the topic than me. Um, there's a couple of people from... There's basically there's people from the Métis Nation, which is mostly from Western Canada, um, sort of Western Ontario and further west, who say that these people need to stop calling themselves Métis because it's causing problems for the Métis Nation. Um, and then there's people allied with the indigenous groups out east, the people in Quebec and in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick, who are uh, trying to sort of do a lot of research on these groups. Um, because they're they're actually causing problems for the people in the region. Um, there's an Acadian guy named Daryl Leroux who does a lot of work on this, and he actually gets harassed a lot by these like these Eastern Métis organizations who, you know, they they threaten him at work. They try and get talks he does canceled. They like threaten to sue him because they don't want him to talk about it, right? Because He's saying, you know, I've done the work that shows that these groups were originally white rights groups, and now they're saying they're Métis so that they can, you know, fuck the day up of the Mi'kmaq or whatever. And, and there's there's other people as well. So, you know, I could point people towards um, better resources than me on the subject. But, yeah, it's just it, it, it's this settler self-indigenization is ultimately what it's about, and um, that's part of sorry, that's part of elimination, right? You eliminate the indigenous people and then settlers start asserting that they are the indigenous people. Which serves to legitimize stealing the land and like just one other way in which it does that. Uh, yeah. I have a, another, this one's a heavy question, but it's also pretty, probably pretty broad. How do Marxism and other leftist tendencies interact or fail to interact with settler colonialism and the struggles of colonized people? Sorry, um, that was how do those how do they fail to interact? How do they interact or fail to interact? Uh, oh. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon on this subject, so I'll, I'll qualify by saying that. I think most uh, – uh, where do I want to start? <laughs> Basically, I'll start by saying that I think overwhelmingly the Marxist-Leninist, in defined in a broad sense, in which I'll include Maoists and even even Trotskyists and whatever under that, is basically it's it's not been it's not been good, especially here in North America. I often find it pretty incredible that Marxist-Leninists and uh, other people can support, for example, the, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and say that Israel is a settler colonial state and all the land should be given back uh, to the Palestinians. Um, but they can't, they can't begin to process that about North America. But I think the tendency kind of splits a few different ways. On the one hand, there's an outright failure to think about settler colonialism or to talk about it, right? Um, and I, I think this is part of a general tendency among some of the left to just talk about racism, right? And, and in this regard, I'm, I'm sort of like eternally indebted to the thinking of the African People's Socialist Party, who I was involved with through one of their mass organizations, one of their solidarity organizations for several years, that uh, it's not really about racism, right? If you think about racism, racism is kind of like the the ideological ideas kicking around inside the heads of white people, right? But it's really about power. It's really about material relations between people, and that's colonialism, you know. Um, so, one, you got to talk about colonialism. Settler colonialism or colonialism in general, it's, it's not just racism, right? It's not just going to be about making white people stop hating us because we're not white. So I, I do think that is one part of the left that fails. Uh, it tends to be a lot of Trotskyists and, and whomever. Um, but one of the, the, other, the other big tendency that I see a lot is okay, when they talk about settler colonialism, when the left talks about settler colonialism, this tendency to treat settler colonialism as purely a historical event, right? And I mean, this is because if you, you, know, you can think of a lot of the settler colonial project as an aspect of uh, primitive accumulation, right? And I think one of the big myths of the left from people who haven't really moved on from Marx uh, uncritically is, you know, to, to locate things like that purely in the past, right? It was a phase of the development of the world system, the world economy that's in the past, right? But I think thinking about settler colonialism as a historical event is a major problem. I was reading something and writing something recently about um, the Workers' World Party in the United States. Yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah, yeah, where um, there was, you know, they were talking about like kind of like, oh, well, we have to think about the history of settler colonialism and its legacy of racism. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I, you know, Patrick Wolf, who I've already mentioned, um, I think he quite powerfully said that settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. Invasion, occupation is always ongoing, right? So it's not that indigenous people were settler colonized and now there's these 
hanging legacies of genocide and occupation that are what we have to deal with. Now, settler colonialism is the structure or one of the principal structures of the United States and Canada today. And again, I think it probably goes back to the fact that they also treat primitive accumulation as something that happened only in the past instead of something that is an ongoing important aspect of the world economy. So I think we have to break away from seeing settler colonialism purely as a past event. And then the last sort of tendency that I see are people, often this is Maoist, Revolutionary Communist Party of Canada, the various sort of Maoist collectives that have now sprung up in the United States post new Communist Party formation attempts collapsing, where there's an active talk of, of Canada and America as settler colonies. But what often I find incredibly frustrating and what I'm very critical of those groups about is, well, what are you going to do about it? What do you, what's your program about that? And things become very opaque uh, at that sort of point. They'll say things like, oh, well, we support self-determination for First Nations or we support self-determination for Indigenous people or whatever term they use. But what does that mean? What does it mean to say that you support self-determination for Indigenous peoples? Does that mean that we, uh, you know, under whatever sort of socialist republic of North America, their goal is that we're going to have self-determination of what our uh, essentially the, the prison camps that we were all pushed onto. Maybe they're going to make the prison camps a little bit bigger. And I think that's, that's a problem. And I, and I think related to that is even this sort of rhetoric of self-determination. We support the right of self-determination of indigenous peoples and whomever to separate. I think that kind of, that, that has the order of things backwards, right? They, they think, oh, well, we will, we will overthrow the capitalist state, and then if indigenous people so wish, they can separate from this glorious new society we've created. But I think we have to think about it in terms of, no, settler colonialism has to be overturned in its entirety first. Because if you overturn settler colonialism, you'll inherently sort of destroy the capitalist state in North America. I think part of this is that indigenous people will the radical, the radical indigenous liberation movement, because I'm not going to say all indigenous people, because of course there's a lot of indigenous liberals, just like there's a lot of liberals of any people or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the like radical indigenous decolonization movement, we're all very clear about what our demand is, and that is give back the land or take back the land, all of it, and not just symbolically, right? Mm-hmm. But the, these, these leftist organizations... Um, even though that indigenous demand is made very clearly now, they, they, don't, they can't bring themselves to say that sort of thing. And they'll say, well, you know, for example, in the city I live in, uh, in southern Ontario, uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party sent organizers here a couple of years ago. And I remember talking with them at one of their first events. I figured I'd go check it out. And um, I said, well, you know, why do you say you just support the self-determination of indigenous people? We're all saying we want our goddamn land back. Um, and they're like, well, we'll just leave it up to indigenous people to determine what, they, what their 
what their demand is. And I said, but we are making our demand. We have determined it. We've made it clear, right? So it's kind of on you guys to say that we support that demand. Um, right. But but they can't. And I think I think I think part of this problem is if you want to like get really meta and philosophical is that with the with the left with the the, the first world left especially in the settler colonies in the United States and Canada which is my main focus it's inherently just that the white worker has what they have and sort of like you know the fundamental injustice of the system is that they are being expropriated from and so it's unjust that they don't have more right but because of this sort of ineluctable uh, materialist link between what they have and dispossession and genocide or what they have and anti-blackness and enslavement or what they have and this you know massive imperialist exploitation of most of the planet then it becomes an injustice for them to make a demand for uh, overturning those relationships in kind of the most radical revolutionary way possible you know so i think they they always sort of there's always something going on on, on sort of the left on, on kind of a meta level where of course they're not going to say it out loud but <clears throat> essentially their programs are that they want to protect what, what a lot of people would call like settler futurity right mm-hmm. whereas i would say that you know fundamentally the left kind of has to think about you know giving up protecting settler futurity you know the way i think about the way i talk to a lot of people about it is i'm like well you you don't lose sleep over what's going to happen to the bourgeoisie do you you know but they lose sleep it seems like over what's going to happen to white people (laughs) after the revolution you know and you know i've seen i've seen i've seen a lot of cases where you know there's, there's almost this sort of like existential dread that like um, indigenous people and African people worldwide and whatever are going to like visit upon the white population with like great gumption, some sort of like revenge for everything they've done to us for 500, 600 years. <laughs> and so I think a lot of, I think a lot of the left is like kind of got these sort of these, these issues um, sort of like going on in an un undeconstructed kind of way sort of internalized yeah yeah and i and i think you know i was talking to a i was talking to a comrade the other day and you know you look at some of these programs like you you look at for example i don't think this is actually in the program but i think it's in other sort of public documents the way the workers world party and i i've seen other leftist organizations talking about this this way as well and they talk about oh well we support reparations to black and indigenous people and i'm like well you know from the indigenous perspective we don't want reparations that implies (laughs) that implies paying us for the stolen land right as some sort of like post thing but we don't we don't want that we want the land back um and so i think i think the left has to grasp that it's about land settler colonialism is about land indigenous oppression is about land and indigenous decolonization is about land right and I think they also have to, they have to give up that there's going to be some sort of future white society, right? Like, you know, if you're going to think about that, you're going to have to like 
ontologically deconstruct all these sort of things. And, you know, we talk about, like, gender nihilism, for example, but this is, this is essentially, like, white nihilism, you know, not implying necessarily putting white people in cattle cars and shipping them off to the third world or whatever to, uh, you know, for some re-education through labor. But, I, you know, these sort of categories are going to have to cease to exist, just like class, etc. But the left, I don't think they can really conceive of a future where those sort of things don't happen for white people. But, you know, the first step is going to be, you know, kind of wiping out the material basis for the existence of the white nation, which is genocide and dispossession and anti-black enslavability and everything else. So I think that's a lot of the problem with the left. Um, you know, even, and you even see this in really the kind of what I think of like as the most radical articulations of the first world left, Jay Sakai, et cetera. Whenever people think of, whenever you get these sort of critics, like people from the Workers' World Party, but other organizations as well, um, when they think about, oh, those people, they talk about settler colonialism or they talk about like metropol, like periphery, super exploitation or whatever, they're all really into Jay Sakai or Butch Lee or whatever. And I, I mean, I totally encourage people to read Jay Sakai and Butch Lee and, and everything else related to that sort of trend. But even if you read, if, even if you read Settlers or you read Night Vision by Butch Lee, I remember being really struck by this. I mean, I really loved those works when I first read them. And I thought, holy shit, these things are kind of saying everything that I've been thinking for years, sort of bouncing around between different leftist trends, trying to kind of figure things out. But if you look at them from an indigenous perspective and you look at them from the perspective of settler-colonialism as a structure, not an event, they still talk about it in a very historical way. You know, settler-colonialism is something that is sort of like passed over, right? The invasion is like passed over and then they go into other things and move on, right? So I think, I think it's something that applies to a lot of the left, this sort of historicization of settler-colonialism. Would you... Okay, because the way I tend to, to try to, to look at things as a as a Marxist is is to take the the idea of historical materialism and apply it to whatever is under observation, right? And so, like in the case of uh, the the U.S. and Canada, like I my sort of sense of what is at work in the U.S. and Canada, like the most fundamental aspect of the present existing circumstances there or here, rather is settler colonialism in the sense that it's land theft and genocide. And so sort of the failure of of people on the left to deal with that correctly, to sort of want to try to make it weirdly, you know, the idea of decolonization weirdly metaphorical or to get really vague when we start talking about self-determination for indigenous peoples and things like that is the sort of desire to extrapolate onto settler colonial states the like for example marx's specific diagnosis of capitalism in europe would you agree with that yeah no i think so i I mean i think one of the big problems with the left is sort of this like eurocentrism that yeah definitely what's kind of inevitable right like you know marx is writing from europe and he has perspective of a European man looking out upon the world. Right. I sort of, I, I, you know, uh, I, I think that sort of Eurocentrism was kind of in, was was going to be sort of inherently part of it. 
um, I don't think you can, um, I don't think it's impossible to get rid of it. So, but I think a lot of people, they, um, because, and maybe this is the problem with um, universals and, and the way a lot of Marxists tend to think of in universals, right? So they don't, they don't think that the Eurocentrism is a problem or they think of the Eurocentrism in really simplistic ways, you know. Um, often I think this gets played, uh, you know, in political economy, right? Like, you know, certainly a lot of Marxist political economy is Eurocentric, but I don't think that the political economy is the only sort of Eurocentric problem with Marxists. And so I, I know a lot of Marxists who are, you know, well, you know, I'm into dependency theory or I'm in the world systems analysis or I'm into third worldism, therefore I'm not a Eurocentric, right? But I do think there are other sort of Eurocentric things um, at work here. Um, and I think it also comes out in really sort of like even cruder ways. Um, I think a lot of Maoists, for example, are on the sort of, their, their attempt to be non-Eurocentric actually kind of becomes um, Orientalist, right? It's like, how can I possibly be a Eurocentric because, you know, I'm into the Chinese Revolution and Chairman Mao, who weren't who weren't Europeans, right? And I, and I think that's really crude. I feel I feel a lot of crap get shared on social media where people are like, oh, you know, here's a here's a collage of anti-colonial leaders from the third world. Lol, how could they? How could Marxism possibly be Eurocentric? But you know, it's entirely possible for non-European people to take up a, Euro, a, a Eurocentric philosophy or a Eurocentric political economy or Eurocentric sort of conception of the nation or whatever, right? Just the fact that there are non-white Marxists doesn't actually undo or disprove Eurocentrism. Sure. And so I think there's, there's sort of like crude kind of knee-jerk reactions because people really do sort of want to like, they don't actually want to do the work necessary to um, excavate and then get rid of Eurocentrism. On this point about Eurocentrism, and it just because I, I want to make this explicit, because I think everyone here in this conversation is aware of of like the different. It, it seems to me that sort of the way Marxists often approach um, Eurocentric Marxists basically approach looking at the U.S. or looking at Canada is when they hear about decolonization, they think of it as almost like an, an external struggle rather than like an imminent contradiction. And so they're like, yeah. oh, okay, like we could decolonize, but then we still have to deal with patriarchy and we have to deal with white supremacy and we have to deal with capitalism. But like, and you, you pointed, you pointed to this explicitly with capitalism. I just wanted to make it explicit with everything else, but it seems to me that you couldn't successfully decolonize these areas without smashing uh cishet normative patriarchy you you wouldn't be able to do it without by definition smashing white supremacy and like just breaking up the u.s would sort of like undercut its ability to act as the imperialist hegemon of the world it it, it hits all of these things that these marxists who very often dismiss decolonization are constantly talking about as important and I think it has to do with making some strange assumptions about what indigenous culture was like prior to contact with colonizers. Like, I think they assume certain conceptions of gender and of sexuality and of even of like, yeah, like things like race. They, they just assume that all of these things were present. So like, oh, well, we can just decolonize. But what they picture in their mind is almost like, because I guess they view settler colonialism so far in the past, what they expect will happen is basically, oh, okay, we still have the 
basic structure of society, but with in more with indigenous people living in a slightly larger territorial space or something like I, I that's at least what it seems to be to me because a lot of the discussions from people who reject this entire discourse are like they're really confused and kind of hard to to figure out what they think the conversation is even about basically uh well one second we need to start trying to wrap it up because Anamaki's got to go uh okay, yeah. the next 15 20 minutes so uh do you have one more question you want to ask and then i will ask one more question <sighs> well i i was hoping hmm i know i wanted to talk well yeah i wanted to talk about gosh fascism religion and <laughs> animal rights <laughs> i don't i don't know which one um to choose from there i guess i'll, I'll make a comment about religion and then maybe a comment about fascism and you know whichever whichever is interesting to talk about like you guys can you guys can choose so the comments about religion is just on the subject of eurocentrism and just getting in arguments with um like you know marxist leninist atheists like you know basically anti-theists about religion had actually gotten me to the point for the first time ever where i actually was like well if this is anti-marxist then like fuck Marxism, which is bizarre because I don't know, people who know me know I like am always like, yeah, Marx, Marxist philosophy, you know. And it's because it seems like when they talk about religion, they just want to copy paste basically Marx's criticisms of like the Prussian state churches and Lenin's criticisms of the Russian Orthodox Church. They want to pretend that that basically criticisms of Christian institutions and Christian theology can be universalized to all religions which i think is incredibly eurocentric and also it's it's really obnoxious because it doesn't actually seem to want to ever do a marxist analysis of whatever religion in question and what its specific or how it can function in a specific political transformation but the other comments i wanted to make was just about um talking about fascism and i just i have your article fascism and anti-fascism uh, a decolonial perspective brought up because i was just I was thinking um, just a lot about looking at fascism from a from a settler colonial perspective, or and I just my my own take on this is a lot of people you know have been talking about Trump like oh God fascism is coming to the U S this is this is fascism this is fascism and I think one thing that they miss if like all of these debates about whether or not it's fascist are completely ignoring the settler colonial dimension to the U S and the fact that for a lot of groups like. Well, what does it mean for fascism to come to power? And also, I think what the other thing that they miss is I think settler colonial societies, because they have like internal colonies, basically, where the logic of their entire structure is to eliminate these colonies, which is very reminiscent of what I think most people think of when they think of fascism. These societies don't actually have to have like a sort of quote unquote fascist revolution. They don't have to have this this sort of, I don't know, right populist revolutionary movement that starts smashing the institutions of liberal democracy. They can just start intensifying the practices of institutions that already exist and maybe broadening the scope a little bit of who they're focused on. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you guys have anything to say in response to either of those comments that well yeah i mean great. i think i'll you know with the fascism one in particular that is you know i mean you basically summed up what i was trying to say a lot but you know i think um i think it's something that jay sakai says that um i think it was sakai i don't have the reference in front of me 
But this is this part of the reason that comparing the United States and Canada with Europe, not to deny that there are fascist movements in America or Canada, but why they never came even close to taking sort of political power the way they did in Europe in the 30s and 40s compared to compared to even now um, is Sakai says, you know, you you already have this ideology or this political practice, political structure that he calls settlerism. And Sakai says that that occupies the same sort of ideological space that fascism would seek to occupy. So America already or Canada already has something that um, is uh, there, right? So they don't they don't need fascism in a way. Well, we um yeah we mentioned this at the end of our um our our last episode, which is like if you look at what Nazi the U.S. Nazi Party was saying in the 30s, is they they held Washington up George Washington up as the first fascist, and it's it's really interesting to me because you know uh, obviously people on the left, it's except for people who are still caught up in you know some settler ideology or whatever are going to say yeah that has a point and people who are fascists and white supremacists are going to say yeah that's that has a point but if you look at the sort of liberal status quo center they say no that's that's such a ridiculous comparison like you can compare robert e lee to fascists if you want but you can't compare our founding fathers to fascists and it's it shows how this like ideological center is like constructed such that it conceals that very real history and that somehow the margins have a much better grasp and a much better assessment of that real history. Scratch a liberal and a fascist bleeds. <laughs> yep. Well, um, I'm actually going to go ahead and let you go because I know, I know you said you got you to gotta split. And what we will try to do is we'll, uh, we'll do a part two on this in the next couple of weeks. Would that be cool with you? Yeah, no, that's fine with me. Okay, yeah. cool. Because we definitely, I know Mialmo has at least like two other subjects he wants to hear you talk about. And I've got, um, I've got about three more questions. So that's probably about another good hour and a half of a podcast that we can do with you. But we really appreciate you coming. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. Look forward to coming back. <laughs> we will, yeah, look, uh, we will look forward to that combo. We will link your blog in the description for this episode when we push it out. And uh, like I said, we'll go ahead and let you go, but we'll be in touch about uh, doing another episode in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Okay, great. Sounds great. I'll uh, talk to you later then. Bye. All right. See you all later. Later.